You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Hey, yo. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 19th day of December, 2010. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners back to the Corbett Report and invite them all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find out previous episodes of this podcast, as well as about articles and interviews and videos that I've created and conducted over the past three and a half years. And as always, I would like to encourage listeners to check out the fine websites and affiliates that are listed under the links section of CorbettReport.com as well. And this week, in terms of housekeeping, just a couple of notes, and uh, they're pretty big ones. I guess the first one, of course, being that, as you have probably noticed, the redesign of the Corbett Report is not yet up, because I still have not received the server details from the new hosting company. And just to give you a little bit more information, there was a hosting company that, behind the scenes, has uh, decided to donate a server for the use of the Corbett Report, and I took them up on that offer, but so far it hasn't come through. I'm not sure what the holdup is. So suffice to say, if it doesn't happen this week, I'll probably give up on that deal and I'll probably continue with my GoDaddy hosting. But at any rate, uh, well, we'll just see what happens over the next week. But the site is basically ready to go when whenever I get the details. And then secondly, of course, uh, the most important thing for this week is that the new DVD, the 2009 video archive, has been launched. It is now available for purchase. And as I speak, the very first copies are sitting here waiting to be shipped out later today. So Thank you to all of those who have already ordered their copy, and I would like to encourage everyone to go to the website to check out the information on the uh, page that has the uh, the actual order form where you can go and order yourself a copy. And of course, there's a, a video up on the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Corbett Report that uh, gives a little bit of a sneak preview of what's on the disc. And there will be a little bit more in terms of a uh, preview of what's on the disc coming later, but uh, in the meantime, of course, I encourage people to buy a copy that's the way you can donate to the Corbett Report and support our work and show your appreciation for what uh, what we're doing over here because it's a lot of work and I do need your support financially to keep this going on. So thank you once again to everyone who has bought their copy so far. And on one other note, I should let people know that, uh, yes, I was just on hiatus for a couple of weeks, but as it's heading into Christmas and New Year, I will be going on a little Christmas and New Year hiatus as well to spend some time with my 
much beleaguered and much neglected wife and my uh, ever supportive and much neglected friends. So uh, I'll be taking a couple of weeks off, but of course we'll be back in the new year with new episodes of the podcast. There will be a midweek Documentaries That Matter bonus episode this week, but other than that, there will be no further podcasts until the new year. And uh, there may be New World next week videos happening in the meantime. I'm not sure. I haven't checked with James Evan Pilato yet. So um, you can look for that and stay tuned to the YouTube account. Stay tuned to the website for anything that might come up in the meantime, articles or interviews. But there will be a little bit of a hiatus as we take a little bit of a breather and enjoy the holidays. But I'll be back better and bigger and stronger than ever in the new year, reinvigorated by all of the support and the outflowing of just great goodwill that I keep getting from the listeners. So thank you to all of you who really do make all of this possible. And now, as always, we have a ton of information to get through today, so let's get straight into today's Sunday Update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 19th day of December 2010. And now, for the real news. Globalist warmonger Richard Holbrook died earlier this week from complications arising from an aortic dissection. Although it was initially reported that his last words had been to tell his doctor that the war in Afghanistan must be stopped, it was later revealed that rather than a weepy deathbed conversion, this statement had in fact been uttered as a joking statement about the never-ending war in Afghanistan, and that Holbrook in fact died an unrepentant tool of the globalist system of military imperialism, which he had served his entire life. Yeah, see if you can take care of that, including ending the war, Holbrook has now claimed to have told his doctor shortly before his death, evidently joking about the fact that the Afghan war became the longest war in American history earlier this year, having so far cost an estimated $376 billion, as well as the deaths of over 2,000 coalition servicemen and an unknown number of Afghani civilians who are not deemed worthy of an accurate body count. Recently, it was revealed that 92% of Afghanis' respondents to a public opinion survey had never even heard of 9-11 or the supposed reason for the NATO-led invasion and occupation of their country. The American government-sponsored, corporate-owned, and foundation-funded media are now working desperately to spin Holbrook as a man of peace whose diplomatic life's work was to resolve and end conflicts rather than manipulate and engineer them for the benefit of his well-connected peers in the Council of Foreign Relations and the Bilderberg Group, of which he was a member. The media are now appointing to his role in brokering the Dayton Peace Accords as proof that he was in fact a peacemaker. But as alternative media are pointing out, that is completely opposite to his demonstrable role as a key enabler of conflict and the expansion of American military aggression around the globe. In 1977, Holbrook visited Indonesia as Assistant Secretary of State, ostensibly to push brutal military dictator Suharto on human rights issues. In fact, he was there to reassure Suharto that America applauded his efforts to resolve Indonesian issues, effectively giving him a free pass on his genocidal death squads in East Timor. Hundreds of thousands of East Timorese were slaughtered, while Holbrook delivered well wishes from the military-industrial conglomerate that is commonly referred to as the American government. 
In early 1999, shortly before the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia, Holbrook met with Yugoslav President Slobodan Milosevic in order to deliver, deliver an ultimatum known as the Rambouillet Text, which called for authorization of NATO occupation of the country, including immunity for NATO personnel from any prosecution, free and unimpeded access for NATO troops to any part of the country, and use of all roads, rails, and airports without payment. Not only was Hol Holbrook proud of the fact that he delivered this unsignable deal to Milosevic, which ultimately led to the bombing of Yugoslavia, he then lied about his own comments on the matter. They, I, I've told you already what they said, that, that the choice you've given us is, is to have our sacred soil violated by an invading force. I said this isn't an invasion, it's not an occupation, it's an international peacekeeping force that will save the Serb minority. Kosovo and so on. You've said since you gave the ultimatum to President Milosevic that the Romulay Accords do not call for the occupation of Yugoslavia. In I never said that. That's, that's the end of that. Huh? You've got the wrong person and the wrong quote. He went on to praise the bombing of Serb television, an act which killed 16 media workers, as a major victory in the American-led NATO-endorsed destruction of Yugoslavia. In 2003, he praised Colin Powell's completely debunked presentation of the case for attacking Iraq before the UN Security Council as, quote, a masterful job of diplomacy by Colin Powell and his colleagues. Going on to say, quote, Saddam is the most dangerous government leader in the world today, and that we have a legitimate right to take action. It was, he was a member of the CFR, the Trilateral Commission, and the Bilderberg Group, as well as a board member of AIG, Coca-Cola, AOL, Time Warner, and Human Genome Services. Observers who are not owned or controlled by these or other affiliated entities are noting that he will ultimately be remembered for his service to the powers of globalization, his devotion to the institutionalized exploitation of the poor and oppressed, and his tireless efforts to shore up support for American military domination from the phony left side of the controlled left-right political duopoly. We're not your slaves, Holbrook. We're not your slaves. Holbrook, we don't belong to you. We're not your property. Get back on the sidewalk. We're free humanity. Yeah, there he goes. Coward. Also this week, the sovereignty-ending Lisbon Treaty that ended any pretense of independence for the European nations that signed on to it is once again in the news, as the EU27 agreed to an alteration of that treaty providing for the establishment of a permanent crisis mechanism that will expand the strength, scope, and reach of the EU at the expense of the individual nation-states that have been subjugated by international financiers. Irish Taoiseach Brian Cowan added insult to injury by claiming that the treaty alterations were minor and that they did not require a referendum to seek the approval of the Irish people. The Lisbon Treaty itself, representing the repackaged EU constitution which was voted down by European voters in 2005, was famously rejected by the Irish people in 2008, so the EU simply forced them to vote on it again, breaking their own election laws in the process, and the treaty was ratified after the re-vote in 2009.
Now, people of all political stripes are shedding their petty doctrinal differences to identify the real perpetrators of this current crisis and are uniting to say that they will not allow hundreds of billions of their euros to be used to bail out international financiers and speculators for fraudulent debts, and they will not allow this crisis to be used by the failing EU in a desperate grab for even more power. Thank you, thank you, President. I voted against the resolution establishing a permanent crisis mechanism for the Eurozone because in Ireland and in Greece we see the reality that such mechanisms are to bail out a crisis-ridden financial system dominated by speculators and assorted profit-seeking sharks at the expense of working people, the pensioners and the poor. Today in Brussels the European Council will most likely decide to amend the Lisbon Treaty to give itself more powers to impose strict conditionality on any financial assistance given to member states, thus institutionalising the doctrine that society must pay for the crisis. I warn the Irish Government not to think it can foist this change to the Lisbon Treaty on the Irish people without a referendum. The Irish Government has already turned our country into a vassal state of the IMF, which is acting blatantly on behalf of the speculators in the financial markets, we demand a referendum on any change to the Lisbon Treaty so the Irish people will have the opportunity to resist being turned full-time into serfs of the financial markets. Thank you. But I do predict that the level of debt now is simply unpayable. It is unquestionably the case that there will be a default in the next uh, years. So we say why wait for then and subject our people to enormous pain and suffering for nothing. But we should uh, refuse to pay the bondholders now immediately. That's the key point. And then develop a plan to, to redevelop our economy. Indeed, as the past week has demonstrated, people are fed up and ready to take to the streets in country after country as it becomes ever more apparent that the entire financial crisis is in fact being used as an excuse to transfer what's left of middle-class wealth to the ultra-rich international banking cartels and to form de facto world government from the ashes of the current political order, exactly as predicted by numerous economic experts. The heir to the throne and his wife under attack tonight in the heart of London. The expression of shock on the faces of the royal couple clear to see. The Duchess of Cornwall looks particularly taken aback. This was an attack at close quarters. A window smashed in their Rolls Royce. The car, a state vehicle, splattered with paint. <laughs> Amateur footage captured the moment when the crowd realised the royals were in their midst. They were on their way to the Royal Variety performance. Their route took them right into the middle of the street protests. The car got kicked pretty severely, I saw it. A lot of people were kicking his car. He was surrounded with lines of police on motorbikes and they tried to protect him as much as they could but there were too many people. Okay, um, as you can see behind me they've now d tried a different window and they've successfully got through it. The police have done another massive unlawful kettling of all these people and they get a bit pissed off, so the Treasury's getting fucked. Everybody go on there, join UK. The normally upmarket shopping district looked like this afterwards. Burnt cars smouldering outside one of Rome's top hotels, shops and offices damaged. Many closed their businesses and watched in horror. 
This is a pretty undignified end to Silvio Berlusconi's day. He may have won the vote in Parliament, but the battle on the streets is still raging on. Let's take you overseas now to Greece, where workers have taken over the streets of Athens today. That's tear gas you see there, protesters clashing with police. Some in the crowd threw Molotov cocktails and police responded. The hostile scene sent some Christmas shoppers running for cover. Now, demonstrators are furious over the Greek government's austerity measures. And our Anne McMillan is watching the story. She's watching it from London, but has more detail on the protests. And Anne, those are our latest pictures. What's the latest information from Athens this morning? Heather, around 15,000 people are on the streets of Athens this morning, or this afternoon. Uh, police are using tear gas against demonstrators throwing Molotov cocktails and starting fires outside Greek Parliament. Um, there are reports of a former cabinet minister being attacked by a mob who uh, hit him in the face, threw bo a bottle at him, and he had to run into a building to escape and then couldn't get to hospital because the, the crowd was braying outside. Now, please go to CorbettReport.com to download episode 167 of the Corbett Report podcast, Social Engineering and You, where we examine how the technocracy manipulated the populations of the world in the 20th century and how they plan to do so in the 21st. Welcome, my friends, to episode 167 of the Corbett Report, Social Engineering and You. And I'd like to use the end of today's Sunday update as the launching point for today's episode, because it seems to me to pose an interesting question. As we see the rails coming off of the world economy, of course, by design, as we've talked about many times before on this podcast, and as we see the banksters really initiating their total takeover of the world economy and the collapsing of that economy to bring in the new world government system, and as we see the US dollar becoming the, uh, losing its status as the world reserve currency, and as we see the euro about to collapse, and as we see all of this economic Armageddon with uh, just the incredible scandals that are coming out now with multi-billion dollar Ponzi schemes like Bernie Madoff and Mortgage Gate and all of these unthinkable schemes of just total and outright looting of the world economy. It's interesting to note that people in Europe are starting to riot, rebel, kick back against the system and say they are refusing to pay for these bailouts of finance financiers and speculators. But Oddly enough, we don't see that kind of action happening in North America. What is it about that society where people are so placated that even though the most egregious theft is really happening from America and the American economy, as trillions of dollars are being taken out the back door through the phony private Federal Reserve system and pumped into European bailouts and God knows where else, and all of this is happening right under the nose of the American people who are not even up in arms about this. There's no rioting going on. There's no sense of any organized political opposition to what's happening. It seems that there really is nothing happening right now that would suggest there is such an economic Armageddon taking place. Why is that? Why are the people of Europe up in arms? Why are the people of America and Canada and many other countries so placated in the face of such fraud? 
Well, one of the answers to that very complex question, to which I'm sure there are many possible answers, but one of the answers to that question may actually have to do with a concept that we've certainly talked about many, many times on this podcast, but not necessarily named as such every single time, and that is social engineering, which, of course, is the process of the utilization of the resources that the banksters and other oligarchs have managed to create out of thin air and otherwise commandeer for themselves, the wielding of those resources in the pursuit of molding society and shaping it in a certain direction to engineer a certain type of person that that society will produce. And we've talked about numerous different aspects of how this is done from the psi war of advertising and television and pop culture and all of the culture creation that we've talked about, the predictive programming the complete dismantling of the school system and the replacement of any actual education system with a government indoctrination camp, a news media that is over 90% controlled by five corporations. In fact, just about every way that you can imagine to manipulate or engineer the psychology of individuals living in a given society have been deployed on the American people in particular, and to a lesser or greater extent to people all around the world. So today I think it would be beneficial to dissect that system, to really take a look at the way it functions so that we can better defend ourselves against it. And I'd like to start that dissection by taking a look at a couple of very specific examples of how advances in the field of psychology in the 20th century enabled the deployment of very advanced, very subtle psychological manipulation techniques as part of the overall social engineering grid. So let's get down to some brass tacks, and let's do that by taking a listen to a short sample from a documentary that I hope my listeners will be familiar with, because it was just released as episode 166 of this podcast, Human Resources, Social Engineering in the 20th Century, by Scott Noble, the creator of Cywar, which we listened to in a previous episode of this podcast. So if you've done your homework and listened to Human Resources, which I highly suggest that everyone does, regardless of whether they have done so yet or not, well, then you'll already be one step ahead. But I'd like to listen to one very short, very specific point that was made in that documentary that I found particularly fascinating because it gives an insight into how people could be manipulated into fighting with each other rather than fighting the real source of their problems. The frustration-aggression hypothesis was an attempt by behaviorists at Yale to combine their own science of behavior with that of the Freudians. Simply put, when people perceive that they are being prevented from achieving just rewards, their frustration is likely to turn to aggression. This study by the behaviorist Hobart Maurer showed that when rats could not achieve their expected reward, they began to take out their frustrations on each other. The scientist notes that two animals which have lost their hold on the pellet, frustration, will be seen to turn on each other, displaced aggression. Similarly, in a 1941 experiment, toys were placed behind a wire screen where children could see but not touch them. When they eventually gained access to the toys, their play became considerably more destructive. On the one hand, human beings are not rats. Armed with the necessary information, we can come to a logical conclusion about who is to blame for our frustrations in life. Rightly or wrongly, we often point the finger squarely back at ourselves. Yet in the hands of politicians and demagogues, frustration aggression can be a potent tool 
and deflecting anger onto scapegoats. Well, that's an interesting hypothesis, but the question necessarily becomes, is it being employed? Are the politicians and demagogues actually using this principle in order to take our frustrations and then displace our anger that we feel welling up inside of us against other members of our society? Are they trying to turn us against each other instead of directing our anger at the system itself? Hi, I'm Janet Napolitano, Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. Homeland Security begins with hometown security. That's why I'm pleased that Walmart is helping to make our communities more safe and secure. If you see something suspicious in the parking lot or in the store, say something immediately. Report suspicious activity to your local police or sheriff. If you need help, ask a Walmart manager for assistance. Thank you for doing your part to help keep our hometowns safe. Well, I trust that it is apparent to those who have woken up to the true war on terror paradigm, that is to say, the false flag terror paradigm by which every major terrorist event or even terrorist attempt is in fact staged, perpetrated, engineered, provocateured, or enabled by the various government agencies that are supposed to prevent such things. But I trust that the psychological manipulation inherent in the entire war on terror paradigm is very evident to listeners of this podcast and has been for some time, but it is nonetheless true that it is very effective at manipulating the frustration, aggression that most people are feeling as the economy starts to collapse and as the world seems to spin out of control. That frustration and aggression that is welling up inside the populace can be redirected away from the system itself, which is causing these frustrations, and towards each other, so that we can turn into a snitch state society and it's absolutely incredible yet it is nonetheless true that in setting up the u.s department of homeland security one of the main advisors that they hired was marcus wolf the ex-head of the stasi i mean you cannot make this stuff up they are engineering a snitch state society in order to get us taking our frustrations out on each other spying on each other ratting each other out so that we will not rebel against the system This is a key thing to understand and a key way that they are manipulating our psychology. And these findings have been known about for decades and decades. And it's very true what Ellen Watt often says, and something that I think bears repeating, is that humans are the most studied animal on Earth. And there has been all sorts of studies and experimentation that has gone on, especially in the 20th century, in order to understand how better to manipulate us using psychological theories of control. Well, let's turn to another very interesting and very important example of how this can work, and let's turn to a psychologist called Bruce Levine, who's available at brucelevine.net, and he's the author of such books as Surviving America's Depression, Epidemic, and Common Sense Rebellion, and he was recently interviewed for PrisonPlanet.tv, that is to say the Alex Jones uh, website that requires subscription membership, And in an extremely fascinating hour-long interview, he goes into a lot of the psychological tools of control that the oligarchy is using to suppress rebellion against the system, or to suppress 
effective rebellion, because of course we can be made to just riot and burn things, but that is not going to solve the fundamental underlying issues of our society. And unfortunately, if we just turn to violence and aggression, unfortunately the system knows very well how to use those forces against us. So, in order to figure out some of the techniques that uh, they are using against us, let's turn to this interview and let me use this as an opportunity to once again exhort people to go and become a member of PrisonPlanet.tv, especially now, as in the last few months they've been putting up video after video of incredible, really very fascinating interviews with great guests like Charlotte Izerbit and Bruce Levine and all sorts of other guests uh, that uh, are not going up uh, on YouTube, or I don't believe they are, and um, it's another great way to support someone who's out there fighting the info war, so please become a PrisonPlanet.tv member. But right now, let's listen to a clip from this interview with Bruce Levine of BruceLevine.net. of different aspects to our society and our culture that has made us feel broken or demoralized or defeated. I'll give you one example. What any psychologist should know are the famous learned helplessness experiments that uh, a lot of them were done on dogs. So one of the most famous learned helplessness experiment was you had three groups of dogs. One group of dogs received no electroshock, a control group. The other two groups received equal amounts of electroshock, but the difference was in one group, these dogs had control over being able to stop their electroshock. and the other group, they had no control. They learned helplessness. No matter what they did, their shocks, they could not stop their shocks. They moved into passivity, into depression. And then when they, all these dogs were given tasks where they could just jump over a barrier to escape from their electric shock, very simple task. The ones who had learned helplessness, the ones who had learned that no matter what they do, the shocks do not go away, they did not even try to jump over the barrier. Whereas the dogs that had learned that if they pressed, used their nose to press the panel and the shocks went away, they figured out how to jump over the barrier and escape. Well, think of what, about what people get to do every election day, national elections, presidential elections. They get to choose a Republican. They get to vote for a Republican and, and basically vote for uh, unnecessary wars and corporate control. Or they get to vote for a Democrat and they vote for unnecessary wars and corporate control. Or they vote for a third party candidate, maybe a Libertarian, maybe a Green Party. And the way it's set up is those third parties have no chance. The media makes sure they have no chance. So when they vote for those third parties, they still get a Democrat or Republican and corporate control and uh, unnecessary wars. Or there's a fourth choice that people can make. They can choose not to vote at all, which is what a lot of people in America do. 40, you know, 40 to 50 percent in presidential elections don't bother voting. You know, in uh, off-year elections, it's, it's a huge majority of people don't bother voting. So what do they get by not voting? Corporate control and unnecessary wars. And so that's learned helplessness. No matter what you do, as long as you're taking seriously that electoral processes, you're going to be helpless. You're going to get that same degree of pain. Um, and so that's one way that people have become helpless and hopeless. They feel that there's nothing that they could do to focus on the electoral process as a way of changing. And no matter what they do, um, it creates just pain for them. They can't make it go away. So that's one arena. Another area 
that, and I ask myself, why is it this generation more passive than the last generation? Why is it that, for example, you had an election in 2000 where, regardless of the fact of how you feel about Al Gore, regardless of the fact that you think the guy was not much different than George W. Bush, regardless of that fact, this was this guy who had 51 million votes, roughly, 500,000 more than George W. Bush. They were going to have a recount in Florida, you know, to see if he actually won that state. The politicized Supreme Court comes in, stops that recount. 51 million Al Gore voters are totally screwed. They're disenfranchised. What happens? Are the streets filled with people protesting? Eh, there's a handful here, there's a hundred here, maybe a thousand here in front of the Supreme Court. Compare that to uh, Mexico in uh, uh, 2006. They also had a similar kind of election where a slightly um, more progressive guy got um, you know, screwed out of election by a slightly more conservative guy. He had almost three million people on the streets in Iran. 2009, okay, same deal. Again, there's a, those people are facing a death if they get out there on the streets. Literally, people died and got arrested and had lives ruined. You had anywhere by estimates a million to three million people out of the streets in Iran. What is it about the United States, okay, that when people get disenfranchised in their elections, that they, they are more helpless, more hopeless, they just give up? Well, there's a lot of reasons. and. One of them, it seems clear to me in this generation, is the issue of a broken population of, the, of, of people on you know, student loans. It's one big difference. In, in you know, years back, when I was growing up in America here, you know, if you were rich, you went to these wealthy institutions. If you were working class, you go to public institutions. They were free. You, when you walked out when you were in your 20s, which is the time in life where you're most likely to rebel and protest and demonstrate, you know, you walk out, maybe you have no job, you have nothing to lose, but you're not worried about being saddled with a $25,000, $50,000, $100,000 debt, which is what young people uh, are, are saddled with in our society. Average debt, average just for undergraduates is over $20,000. Any kind of professional training, it moves closer to $100,000 a, a year. Well, let me tell you, if I walked out, Okay, when I was in my 20s with that kind of debt, I, it would have broken me. I wouldn't have resisted. I wouldn't have rebelled. I just would have went along with the program, been terrified of not having a job, been terrified of everything being taken away from me. And so we've allowed, we've done two things in our culture. We've pushed shame parents to make them feel like they're horrible parents if they're, all their kids not only don't go to school, they don't go to prestigious school, they don't go get masters, they don't get their professional training. We've got a president who's shaming you know, whole society because they're not graduating from college. And then on the other hand, we have, uh, we have allowed these young people to lose all their grants, all their support, or low tuition, and, and have them pay these ridiculous rates in student loans. And debt breaks people. Okay, it's one of the ways that people have historically known that you will get broken when, when you're, you're in debt. And so that's one way that they're broken. Well, learned helplessness and the inherent learned helplessness that comes with the unbelievable amount of student debt that young people are saddled with in our society these days, well, that is obviously a key way to keep us from rebelling against the system because, of course, we become very dependent on the system basically from the beginning of our lives. We become these debt-saddled uh, debt 
slave beings that are just working to try to get enough of those funny green pieces of paper that they print out of nothing in order to keep food on the table for the rest of our lives. A very, very effective way of controlling a society. But nonetheless, all of these techniques that we've so far looked at in today's episode represent what might best be described by the subtitle of that first documentary we took a listen to, Human Resources, Social Engineering in the 20th Century. Because these techniques, although extremely effective, and no doubt they will continue to be deployed and refined and further deployed on the populations of the world into the 21st century, but still these represent somewhat outdated, somewhat old-style, old-fashioned forms of control. Well, what are some examples of 21st century social engineering, and are they already coming down the line? Well, unfortunately, the answer is a resounding yes. And surprisingly enough, these technologies for this type of control has been around for decades. In fact, since at least the 1960s. And to begin exploring this topic, let's just take a quick dip back into the archives to go over a lecture that we first listened to, uh, I believe, two years ago on the Corbett Report podcast. Well then, uh, very briefly, let me speak about uh, one of the more recent uh, developments of, uh, uh, in the sphere of, uh, of neurology, the, uh, the implantation of uh, electrodes in the brain. Uh, this, of course, has been done on a large scale in, uh, in animals, and in, uh, in a few cases it's uh, been done in, hopeless, uh, in cases of the hopelessly insane. Uh, and it is anybody who's uh, watched uh, the behavior of rats with uh, electrodes planted in different centers uh, must uh, come away from this experience with the most extraordinary doubts about what on earth is in store for us if uh, ever this uh, is got hold of by a dictator if uh, the uh, I saw not long ago some rats uh, in Magoon's laboratory at UCLA, uh, there were two sets of them, one with electrodes planted in a pleasure center. And these rats were, the, the technique was that they had a bar which they pressed uh, and which um, turned on a very small current for a short space of time, which uh, we had a wire connected with their electrode and which um, stimulated this pleasure center, which was evidently absolutely ecstatic, because these rats were, were pressing the bar 18,000 times a day. <laughs> and, uh, apparently, if you kept them from pressing the bar for a day, they would press the bar 36,000 times on the following day and would fall till they fell down in complete exhaustion. <laughs> And they would neither eat nor be interested in the, the opposite sex and would just go on pressing this bar. Uh, then the most extraordinary rats were those where the electrode was planted halfway between a pleasure and a pain center and where evidently the, the result was a kind of mixture of the most wonderful ecstasy in being on the rack at the same time. And you, you would see the rat sort of looking at its bar and sort of saying, to be or not to be, that is the question. <laughs> and finally would approach and do it. And then it would go back. Uh, 
with this awful, I mean, the, if one can humanize or anthropomorphize, I mean, he was feeling something terribly mixed, and he would wait for quite a long time before pressing the bar again, but he would always press it again. I mean, <laughs> this was the, the extraordinary thing. And the, in the, I noticed in this um, most recent issue of the Scientific American, there's a very interesting article on electrodes in the brains of chickens. Uh, where the, the technique is, is very ingenious. You, you sink into their brains a little um, socket with a, with a screw on it, and the electrode then can be screwed deeper and deeper into the brain stem, and you can test at any moment, according to the depth of it goes in fractions of a millimeter, of what you're stimulating. And, and these creatures are not merely uh, stimulated by wire, they are fitted with a, a miniaturized radio receiver weighing less than an ounce, which is attached to them, so that they can be communicated with at a distance. I mean, they can run about in the barnyard, and you can press the button, and uh, the, this particular area of the brain to which the electrode's been screwed down to will be stimulated, and <coughs> you will get these uh, fantastic phenomena that a, a sleepy chicken will suddenly get up and rush about, or a, uh, an active chicken will suddenly sit down and go to sleep, or a hen will suddenly start sitting as though it were, uh, were hatching out an egg, uh, or a rooster will start fighting, or will suddenly go into a state of extreme depression. Uh, the, uh, the whole picture of the absolute control of the drives is, a, uh, is terrifying. And uh, in the cases, the few cases in which this has been done with very sick human beings, uh, the effects are evidently very remarkable too. I was talking last summer to, uh, in England, to Gray Walter, who is the um, most eminent exponent of the electroencephalogram techniques in England, and he was telling me that they, he's seen hopeless uh, inmates of asylums with these things in in their heads, and that uh, these people were suffering from uh, uncontrollable depression. And they were, they'd had uh, the electrodes inserted into something resembling, evidently, the pleasure center of the rat. Uh, anyhow, when they felt too bad, they just pressed a button on the battery in their pocket, and he said the result was fantastic. The mouth would go down, would suddenly turn up, and they would evidently feel, for, I don't know for how long at a time, very cheerful and happy. So that <coughs> here again one sees uh, the most uh, uh, extraordinary uh, revolutionary techniques uh, which are now available uh, to us. That, of course, was Aldous Huxley from his infamous 1962 lecture delivered at Berkeley, The Ultimate Revolution. And we did play that first back in episode 34 of this podcast, so I'll direct listeners to go back and re-listen to that episode to find out more about uh, that uh, lecture and the context surrounding it. But suffice it to say that, of course, Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World, was well-situated in his uh, social environs to know of what he spoke. And I'm sure a lot of my listening audience will already understand what I mean by that. But if you don't, please go and watch my Film Literature in the New World Order episode on Brave New World in order to find out more about the Huxley family and his connections and how he knew about the types of 
scientific technological control grid that was being erected even back then, even 50 years ago. But in just to demonstrate that this is not just the ravings of a uh, insane man, no, of course, Aldous Huxley was very much in the heart of the uh, academic and scientific progress uh, of these types of control techniques. But just to further demonstrate this, let's go to a different experiment that also has become somewhat infamous, but maybe you have not heard about it. And this took place in 1969 in Spain. During the Cold War, mind control became an active area of research. Brainwashing proved to be a blunt tool, but brain surgery offered a more focused result. In the mid-1960s, a procedure developed by Dr. Jose Delgado took psychosurgery to a whole new level. I was continually thinking about the brain, about the possibility to do research, about the possibility to go inside, in the depth of the brain. Rather than cutting things out of the brain, as Walter Freeman had done, Delgado decided the best thing to do was to insert something into the brain. At Yale, Delgado became fascinated by the idea that electrodes implanted in animals' brains could control aggressive behavior. In the summer of 1964, to perform a truly audacious stunt, he chose not a rat, nor a mouse, but a bull. The owner, he said, well, you can do that with cats and monkeys. You cannot do that with bulls, can you? Well, I don't know. Let's try. Would you allow me to place electrodes in one of your brave bulls? Sure, do that, no problem. But you will not be able to pacify him. I don't know, maybe not. Let's try. Dr. Delgado really did intend to stop an animal specially bred to be aggressive in its tracks. This footage shows Dr. Delgado in action. We anesthetized the animal. There we implanted electrodes in the head. Well, next day, the bull was normal. And the bull was just going around, charging against anybody who could be in the war ring. It's not completely normal. Then I thought, well, I know a little about bullfighting, so I'm going to test this by myself. Delgado leapt into the ring with an extremely dangerous animal, armed with nothing but a remote control. He was betting his life that this would work. The animal was few feet away. I pushed a button in the radio simulator and the animal really stopped completely. It was, was frightening, was a, was a, but it was an experiment. And so when the experiment was over, the bull was in very good health and I was in very good health also. So no problem. 
Jose Delgado was jubilant and saw the success of his experiment as just the beginning. That took us to another big step. If electrodes implanted in animals are possible, can we implant electrodes in the human brain? To many people, this vision of brain manipulation was not thrilling. It was downright terrifying. It presented a nightmarish future where anyone who threatened the state could be controlled. Far-fetched? Well, in 1970, researchers from Harvard Medical School suggested using psychosurgery on black rioters, while others suggested putting implants into gay men to turn them straight. Ethical approval proved impossible. Funding for brain implant research fizzled out. But the story of implants wasn't over. No, it certainly wasn't, and it certainly isn't, unfortunately, because the possibility of being able to control people like robots through neurological stimulation must be the ultimate dream of any would-be dictator in the 21st century. And unfortunately, we are inching closer and closer to that dream or nightmare becoming a reality. Once we start talking about being able to literally engineer human behavior through direct neurological stimulation, well, basically the sky is the limit in terms of where this will end up. But here is an indication of just what the seriousness of what we're talking about that came very recently. This was from BBC News from the 30th of March, 2010. Morality is modified in the lab. Quote, scientists have shown they can change people's moral judgments by disrupting a specific area of the brain with magnetic pulses. They identified a region of the brain just above and behind the right ear, which appears to control morality. And by using magnetic pulses to block cell activity, they impaired volunteers' notions of right and wrong. The small Massachusetts Institute of Technology study appears in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Lead researcher Dr. Leanne Young said, You think of morality as being a really high-level behavior. To be able to apply a magnetic field to a specific brain region and change people's moral judgments is really astonishing. The key area of the brain is a knot of nerve cells known as the right temporoparietal junction. The researchers subjected 20 volunteers to a number of tests designed to assess their notions of right and wrong. In one scenario, participants were asked how acceptable it was for a man to let his girlfriend walk across a bridge he knew to be unsafe. After receiving a 500 millisecond magnetic pulse to the scalp, the volunteers delivered verdicts based on outcome rather than moral principle. If the girlfriend made it across the bridge safely, her boyfriend was not seen as having done anything wrong. In effect, they were unable to make moral judgments that require an understanding of other people's intentions. Previous work has shown the RTPJ to be highly active when people think about the thoughts and beliefs of others. End quote. 
Now, if that does not send chills down your spine, then you obviously are unable to use your imagination to think of how this technology could be employed or deployed. But perhaps some people, some incredulous people in the audience might think, well, how could they ever possibly convince anyone to take these types of neurological stimulation devices? How will we ever be implanted with the type of technology that will directly interface with our brain? Surely it would be almost impossible to convince people in our society that it would be worth having some sort of electronic device implanted into our brain to directly interface with our, our brain itself. No one would fall for that. No one would be willing to d undergo that, right? Smarter technology will blur the line between what is real and what is not. New immersive games require new ways to play them. Future gamers won't need a joystick or a paddle. They'll interact with their games directly from their brains, using devices like the Epic headset from Emotive. Our whole interaction with the virtual world is going to be far more natural. We'll be able to use our brain um, and our facial expressions and our emotional experiences to really experience content in entirely new ways. And what we've created is a brain-computer interface that really transforms the way that humans interact with machines. The Emotive Epic wireless headset has 16 independent sensors that pick up electrical brain signals on the surface of the scalp. We identify um, a signature for a particular thought or a particular emotion, and then in real time, we classify those brain patterns. So when you think it, it happens on the screen. You think push, the object propels forward. So now my master's showing me how to pull using that tree. Then he'll ask me to focus all my thoughts on pulling that tree towards me. There are 13 individual detections, push, pull, lift, drop, left, right, and then rotation in six different axes in a 3D environment. You can even visualize an object disappearing, and it will. But the headset is more than just a brain-powered joystick. It allows the game to detect whether or not you're actually having fun. It observes your experiences, excitement versus calmness, immersion, tension, frustration, engagement. There are these mischievous spirit wisps that instead of pressing a button, I can scare away just by looking fierce. So, <laughs> and you can notice by the sky color that I enjoy that part. So when it comes to future game playing, keep an open mind. We're really only at the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's possible. What was once the stuff of nightmare science fiction is now increasingly becoming reality. And unless we understand how ancient and modern techniques of psychological and even neurological control are going to be or are already being deployed against us, we will never understand how to combat the system that is being put into place as we speak. I leave it as always with you to continue doing this research and to spread this research to others because it is only when we are informed of what is really going on and how we are being manipulated that we can ever hope to overcome the psychological and social engineering control grid which is attempting to enslave us. 
I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for this edition of the Corbett Report podcast and asking you to join me in, in the middle of this week for our Documentaries That Matter bonus episode. And then we'll be back with the next episode of the podcast proper in the new year. Until then, I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. Stay warm and stay safe. Corbett Report is brought to you by the Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com.